0: You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, but what about the jolly old elf holding the reins? Saint Nicholas, Old Saint Nick, Sinterklaas, or simply Santa Claus? He's gone by many names, but where does this rich and seemingly timeless tradition come from? On this special edition of PreserveCast, we're headed down a winding reindeer path to uncover the rich history of Santa Claus and how he came to define the modern celebration of Christmas. A couple of housekeeping items for today's episode. First, thank you all for your support over the past year. If you've enjoyed listening to this weekly podcast, we could really use your help. As a nonprofit, we produce this podcast on a shoestring budget, and every dollar supports our work to increase understanding and awareness of the power of preservation. Visit PreserveCast.org to make a year-end donation today. Second, if you have little ones listening, be careful. This episode is honest in its depiction and retelling of Santa's origins and comes with that spoiler alert for true believers. Finally, the background material for today's episode comes from a wide variety of sources, especially Dr. Steven Nissenbaum's seminal work, The Battle for Christmas, as well as the New York Historical Society and American Antiquarian Society. Now, let's go find our favorite elf on this week's PreserveCast. Before we talk Santa, we need to put Christmas in context. The Christmas of yore was nothing like what we know today. Whereas today, Christmas is a commercialized family affair, Christmas long ago was a midwinter bacchanalia of pleasure, celebration, and carnal delight. By the 4th century common era, December 25th, which was never referenced in the Bible, was selected by early Christians to compete with the midwinter celebration of the pagan holiday Saturnalia. Much of the carnival-type atmosphere of the early Christmas was appropriated from the pagan celebrations, the feasting, the singing, the merrymaking, and the licentious and wild debauchery. So-called lords of misrule oversaw wild parties through 12 days of festivities. The lords were appointed to choreograph the depravity, which often spilled into the church itself, where revelers sometimes took on the role of priests and deacons and threw wild parties. One 15th century French account described the scene in a church where, unquote, priests and clerks may be seen wearing masks and monstrous visages. They dance in the choir dressed as women. They sing wanton songs. They eat black puddings while the celebrant is saying mass. They play at dice. They run and leap through the church without a blush at their own shame. Even if your family is a little wild at Christmas, they've likely never reached this level of depravity. By the early modern period, Christmas was cemented as part religious celebration and part observance of what had been interpreted as role reversal, where the poor demanded favor from the rich, who were obliged to make good. It was a period following the harvest when beer and meat was plentiful, when celebrations, drinking, feasting, and fornication were not only tolerated but almost universally accepted. It became a sort of yearly pressure valve on the otherwise dark and tightly controlled class system, which permeated much of the Western world. Early American Puritans, centered in New England, were horrified by these practices, and in the New World, they hoped to make a clean break with the carnival that had been so long associated with Christmas. Puritans rejected December 25th altogether, seeing it for what it was a date selected by early Christians to compete with pagan traditions. For generations, many in New England observed nothing on December 25th. Despite their best efforts to end these traditions, the celebration of Christmas could never be wholly extinguished on the new continent. As early as 1621, just a year after establishing their outpost, Governor William Bradford of Plymouth Colony recorded in his diary that a group of Christmas keepers were taking the 25th of December off work. Furthermore, they weren't just avoiding work. They were, according to Bradford, gaming and reveling in the streets. What historian Stephen Neisenbaum called the battle for Christmas continued throughout early, pre- and post-revolutionary war America. Over time, even the most ardent puritanical opponents of celebrating Christmas succumbed to the pressure accepting it as an entirely religious observance and eschewing the raucous revelry. However, even by the mid-18th century, many still embraced the ribaldrous customs of old. One account written in 1786 explained that in New York City, unquote, some good people religiously observe it as a time set apart for the most sacred purpose, while others observe Christmas by reveling in profusing and paying their sincere devotion to Mary Bacchus, end quote. Bacchus was the Greek and Roman god of wine and ecstasy. Another reference from that same period in New York described the wild scene where the sons of gluttony and drunkenness unquote, sally forth unto the streets, and by their unmeaning, wild, extravagant noise, disturb those citizens who would rather sleep than get drunk. It was in this moment, at the dawn of the New Republic, in the early 19th century, that Americans, especially New Yorkers, were looking for a new way to celebrate Christmas, which balanced tradition with propriety and respect. It's also important to remember, along with the changes wrought by war and the founding of the new nation, that New York City was quickly changing, shifts that put the old order at unease. Vast stretches of Manhattan Island, dotted with verdant pastoral estates, was being carved up into a grid of numbered streets to manage the exploding population growth. In 1790, the city was home to 33,000 inhabitants. By 1830, that number had skyrocketed to 200,000. Many of these new residents were immigrants from foreign lands whose very existence threatened what some had come to understand would be the makeup of the new nation. Socially, religiously and culturally, New York and by extension, America was changing. Into the fray of these tectonic cultural shifts come several individuals who would change Christmas forever. John Pinterd looms large over the history of Christmas. Born in 1759, during the French and Indian War, Pinterd was, among many other pursuits, a patriot, a merchant and an antiquarian. He was a founding member of the New York and Massachusetts Historical Societies, and like so many early antiquarians, he manipulated history often to harken back to a simpler time, especially when it came to the celebration of Christmas. Pinter's yearning and nostalgia for an imagined Christmas led him to introduce Sancti Claus to New York in 1810 in a broadside published by the New York Historical Society. Calling back to apocryphal Dutch traditions, which had been long abandoned and perhaps never celebrated in New York, pinterd hosted banquets and encouraged the celebration of St. Nicholas's Day, December 6th, as a date to celebrate and give small gifts. St. Nicholas of Myra, the early Greek saint, was the basis for the Dutch feast day, but beyond legend and some history of gift-giving, the factual basis of the day, or the Greek bishop behind it, had little real impact on the way it would be celebrated in America. Sancti Claus would be a vessel for Americans to fill to their own liking. Pinter would later turn his focus to New Year's Day, while still holding tight to the idea that Christmas could be more than a choice between religion or revelry. Next, we bring Washington Irving into the conversation, Irving, born 1783, is fondly remembered as one of America's most beloved and famous authors, penning iconic short stories still read today, including The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. Though not as well remembered, Irving's Knickerbocker's History of New York, published in 1809 as literary parody, lays some of the groundwork for those who would follow in reinventing Christmas as we know it. In Knickerbocker, Irving describes an almost entirely invented Dutch Sancti Claus. In Irving's world, Santa is a mythical character who, clenching a pipe in his teeth, delivered presents from a wagon to stockings hung by children from their fireplace mantles. Sound familiar? 20th century historian Charles W. Jones, an authority in his own right on the history of Santa, went so far as to argue that without Irving, there would be no Santa Claus. Jones continued, and quote, The Knickerbocker history contains two dozen allusions to him, many of them among the most delightful flights of imagination in the volumes. Here is the source of all the legends about St. Nicholas in New Amsterdam. Here is the depiction of Santa Claus bringing gifts, parking his horse and wagon on the roof while he slides down the chimney. All sheer fictions produced by Irving. Irving coupled his Knickerbocker satire and faux history with later volumes including Bracebridge Hall, which tells the story of a search for an old-time Christmas on an English manor, an almost crossover between a Hallmark movie and a Jane Austen novel. Of course, here again, the hero of the story isn't yearning for street revelry and debauchery, but instead a sort of pseudo-historic imagined Christmas where rich and poor live in harmony and gather around the hearth to celebrate the season. Taken together, Irving sets the stage for our final participant to cement Santa in his place as the protagonist of nearly two centuries of Christmases to follow. Enter Clement Clark Moore. Born in 1779, Moore is yet another New Yorker equally concerned about a changing city. Moore's own country estate, known as Chelsea, was carved up to meet the voracious appetite of the city's expansion. Today, the dense urban neighborhood, upon which his estate once sat, is known by the same name, Chelsea. Moore served as a professor of Oriental and Greek literature, as well as divinity and biblical learning at the General Theological Seminary of the Protestant Episcopal Church in New York. But for that work, he accepted a token salary. His real wealth came from vast land holdings and a rich inheritance. Chelsea alone was said to have been worth some $500,000, a sum of nearly $12 million in 21st century dollars. So then, it was Moore, the serious, affluent, conservative academic who took pen to paper and with Irving, Pintered, and others pointing the way, anonymously penned what was first known as an account of a visit from St. Nicholas and has since been known more popularly as The Night Before Christmas. Legend and some documentation suggest that the verses were written at the home of his cousin, Constable Hall, located some 300 miles from his home in a hamlet north of Rome, New York. It was not for another 16 years that Moore would be identified as the author, supposedly remaining anonymous to protect his reputation as a serious professor of ancient languages. Despite all his success in life and the high esteem with which he was held in society, it is, of course, for this poem that he is now remembered at all. In the night before Christmas, all the ingredients of our modern-day Christmas come together and set the stage for the holiday and the Santa we hold dear. Instead of revelry in the streets, it is a private affair at home. Instead of a class struggle between rich and poor, The power dynamic has shifted to elevating children for a day, while their adoring parents will serve and gift them. At the center of the new holiday is the equally harmless jolly old elf Santa Claus, a timeless character who seems as if he must have stepped out of a comforting thousand-year tradition. Moore also shifts the focus to Christmas Eve, avoiding the controversy of the day itself and the battle over a religious or profane observance. Subsequent authors and artists would augment and adapt, increasing Santa's size from Moore's miniature version. And the Civil War illustrator Thomas Nast would add tremendous depth and warmth to Santa's image. But much of Moore's original Santa remains to this day. He was off to the races, and Americans gladly embraced the new figure and the trappings of the secular Christmas which followed, from German tannenbaums to Christmas carols. In 1897, in response to an inquiry about the existence of Santa, the New York Sun's Francis Farcellus Church's famous response, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, could be where we end this podcast, too, because, yes, there is a Santa Claus. And he was invented in the fertile minds of creative New Yorkers looking to address and make sense of the changes unfolding in their own world, just as we often do today. But of course, that's the cynical take, and if Pinterd, Irving, and Moore have taught us anything, it's that the holidays are no time for cynicism. Perhaps the New York Sun was right, that we need a Santa Claus now more than ever, and that he does exist as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. We can know the origins of our history without growing contemptuous or unwilling to accept a bit of magic in exchange for an escape from the doldrums of the bleak midwinter. Just because something is invented makes it no less magical or meaningful. All traditions start somewhere. None are pure or perfect. But the story of Santa Claus and the joy he brings every year to young and old alike has made Christmas a time for merriment and wonder. And that is a story worth preserving. For Preserve Guest, I'm Nicholas Redding, and I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore It was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama and her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. The moon and the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. And what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and he shouted and he called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the coursers they flew "'with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas, too. "'And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof "'the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. "'As I drew in my head and was turning around, "'down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. "'He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, "'and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. "'A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, "'and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack.' But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night.